I've discovered lately that there is no consensus on the senses of the senses. Did you know that? Let me run it by you again. There's no consensus on the census of the senses. What I'm saying is, when I grew up in school, uh, I learned in my education that we have five senses, sight, smell, sound, touch, and taste. But recently, researchers have added, researchers have added four more, balance, temperature, pain, and position. I don't like them messing with my education. That's all I know. But I'm going to mess with their research. I would add a tenth one, and that is the sense of emptiness. Many of us here this morning were blessed having been discipled by our parents. Jesus was real in our home. They loved Christ. They lived out what a relationship with him looks like. I'm eternally grateful for my parents who did that. Some here this morning had that early training. You decided that wasn't your way, and so you wandered for a while, and you came back in time after experiencing some life. Others of you came to adulthood without any real knowledge of a relationship with Jesus, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, that there is this nagging sense that all is not well within us. We come to a time in our life where we tried everything that we thought would complete us, and make us feel together, and yet there is still a sense that it's not. And we know that God has created us with a sense that if he is not there filling our hearts and our lives, there'll always be this vacuum within us that only he is qualified to fill. Like the man that we meet in Luke chapter 15 today, it's a familiar text to most of us, but there's always things to learn. Verse 18, Luke 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony on your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is impossible with God. Peter said, and well, we've left all. We've had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers, parents, children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This man had everything, and yet he had nothing. He had anything money could buy in that time, and yet there was still this aching hole within him. He was young. He was a ruler. He was an aristocrat. He met Jesus. He left unchanged. He left saddened, unhappy. We don't know his name. We'll call him Ben, for lack of a better word. And much about him is right when he comes to Jesus. He comes at the right time. Uh, he comes when he's a young adult rather than an older adult. The older we get, the harder it is for a person to get to Jesus. That's why we committed $8 million in building this children's center so that, so that lots of kids can get to Jesus. 
And the sooner you get to Jesus and are introduced to him, the better off you're going to be, the easier to make the decision. Many of us can testify to that. He came with the right, to the right person, Jesus. He came with the right energy. He came running to Jesus. He came with the right attitude. He fell on his knees when he came to him. And he came with the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we learn all of that because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three record this scene of Jesus' life. And we blend them all together to get even a fuller picture what Luke doesn't tell us Matthew and Mark do. So, so he, he comes running to Jesus full of hope, but he walks away dragging his feet because the teaching of Jesus is just too difficult. And he's not willing to do what Jesus commands him to do. The call of Jesus is a costly one. Now, we know that salvation is a free gift. Only Jesus can save us. We're not qualified to do that. But when we say yes to Jesus, that there is a cost in what he calls us to. And here they are. Let's do our own evaluation. It'll cost you the probing of your heart. So here Jesus says, well, you know the commandments that he names them. Why is he doing that? I mean, it's not, we can't get to Jesus by following laws. We can't go to heaven by following laws. We know that full well from a myriad places in Scripture that teach us about that. It's not about a, a good enough life. But Jesus is so kind. He's relating to this man in an arena that he can, he can respond to. He can relate to the commandments because he's such a legalistic kind of guy. He's a rule keeper. He, he thinks by keeping, maybe there's one more rule. Why is it he, he's kept all these rules and yet there's something empty? Maybe you started the Christian life like that. That if, you just, if I just do these rules, then I'll be okay. And yet something is missing in your life with Christ. That happens to people often. I appreciate Jesus that when this man says, well, I've kept all these, Jesus doesn't start a debate with him. Because even though the man had certainly obeyed the letter of the law, the commandments, he, he hasn't obeyed the spirit of the law. Has he really always honored his parents? He's never dissed his parents. You know, he's, he's, never, he's never had a wrong thought, hardly. But he thinks he's good enough in it. But Jesus is not going to do that. He's not going to debate that because that's not going to get him anywhere. And so what Jesus does is he just, you know, he lists these commandments. It's like counting, listening to him, naming these commandments. It's like hearing one, two, four, five, six. Now, the Ten Commandments can be divided into two sections. The first four commandments have to do with one's relationship with God. The last six have to do with one's relationship with other people. And so those are the ones Jesus is quoting. And he's like counting one, two, four, five. And he, he, he should have said, hey, you missed one. Because there's one obviously missing. And it's the command that says, do not covet. Because this man was a wealthy man. He had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of possessions. In fact, instead of debating what Jesus missed out on, he just simply said, well, I've kept all those since I was a boy. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. One thing you lack. Because see, Ben has a God in his life that he's not recognizing. Gold is his God, and his creed is greed. That's how he's lived. And there's only room for one God in your life. Now, going to the doctor gave me a tricky thing. Now, I've been blessed with a, with a healthy life, but I can remember one time I went flying off the table, and I was a senior in high school, and that doctor went thumping on me, and he thumped right over my appendix. I had appendicitis. I came unglued. That was obviously my problem. That's what doctors do. They thump us. 
and they probe and they prick and they look around and they look at, look at all kinds of things on our bodies to look for clues for things. There are some people that refuse to go to a doctor because if they go, they might find out what's wrong and have to do something about it. Have you ever known people like that? I've known people like that. There are some people who have a little bit of Jesus in their lives in the same way. You know, they don't mind a little bit of spoon feeding in a Bible study or on Sunday morning church, but to really enter the great physician's office suite throughout the week and invite the Holy Spirit of God to probe and to look and reveal is a little too risky. And yet to be a follower of Jesus means we are inviting him to probe our lives and look deeply within us. This man wasn't willing to go as far as Jesus wanted him to go to examine the gods of his life. Look, there's, there's only room for one God in your life. And every one of us in this room, without exception, has a rival God. Everybody. If you think today that Jesus is your only Lord and you don't have a rival God, you don't know yourself. And you're in danger, I would say. There's always a rival God that wants first place. And unless you keep an eye on that God and keep him in the right place, uh, that God can swallow you up. So be aware of that. This is also going to cost you your treasure, being this close to Jesus and him being your Savior and Lord, being really open to the street talk he wants to have with you. It's a shocking commandment. Jesus tells the guy, I want, you, I want you to sell all you have, give to the poor, and then you can follow me. Now, this one particular hard teaching of Jesus has caused people a lot of grief and consternation throughout the centuries. Some people have thought, if you want to be a Christian, you really need to do that. We should take, all take a vow of poverty and sell whatever we have, we give to the poor, live a very menial life materially. And through the centuries, people have done that. We don't teach a health and wealth gospel, nor do we teach a, a uh, selling out. Obviously, we don't because you dressed pretty well today. You drove pretty good cars to get here. You're going home to pretty nice houses. You take pretty good vacations. We all do, right? So what, what is this about? Now, Jesus may call you to do this if possessions possess you. For this man, that was the truth. He was possessed by his possessions. And that was his testing point. Then he was unwilling to dethrone that God. Now, Jesus didn't always speak to people this way because that wasn't always the issue. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Jesus didn't tell Nicodemus that he had to, he was probably a man of standing because of his, his Jewish standing and being a ruler among Jews. But his requirement was to sell out all his possessions. But he had to learn about new birth. He had to give up his position. Uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were, were f- close friends of Jesus, probably wealthy because, of course, they owned that jar of costly perfume, nard, worth a year's wages. That'd be a rarity in Israel. Uh, but Jesus didn't tell them. Why? Because they weren't possessed by their possessions. In fact, Mary was willing to pour it all out on Jesus' feet in worship, right? A couple of weeks ago, Luke preached on the Good Samaritan. And he, this man wanted to justify himself, remember? And he, he said, well, who's my neighbor? Like, who do I really have to care about? And so Jesus told the story of the good Samaritan. And that guy was knocked off his feet because his God was his Jewish pedigree. And he didn't want to love a dirty, rotten, scoundrel neighbor like a Samaritan. 
that that was his God, his heritage. And then Jesus meets the woman at the well, and her problem was she loved all her neighbors too well, right? She had five men in her life previously, and now she was living with a man. She was trying to find her worth and identity by relationships, and she had to get rid of that rival God to get to Jesus. It's different for everybody. It's different for you and me. But you see, we have to be willing. We have to be willing to let Jesus in, the great physician in, to probe us and, and to reveal what might be in us. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or God and you fill in the blank, whatever it is. You can't do that. What's it mean? It means two things. First of all, Jesus is your treasure in heaven. We talk a lot about the wonder of heaven. We don't often talk a lot about the wonder of seeing Jesus. But he is your true treasure in heaven. He trumps heaven as great as heaven will be. Jesus is saying to this man, look, you've got a great estate. You own a lot. God's honestly, God has obviously blessed you. But what I can give you is far greater than what you own. I, I, I'm going to, God is going to impute upon you my righteousness, and the wrath you deserve is going to come on me. That's where we're headed. We're coming to Jerusalem. That's what's going to take place. That's what he's saying to this man. Whatever you think you need to have for life, I have something better for you that you don't really understand. That's what you need. I'm what you need. Come to me and you can be free from worry. You can be, from be free from being trapped from all this. And, and you can become a generous person loving to give yourself away and your money away in Jesus' name. He also is saying not only is Jesus your treasure in heaven, but when you come to him, you are, Je- are Jesus' treasure. We are Jesus' treasure when we get to him. That's what Jesus is teaching in this other text outside of ours. You can't serve both God and money. You know, our treasure in heaven. We become his treasure when we are born again. Do you know that? Do you understand? Do you see yourself that way? Do you know that about yourself? That if you have been born again, you are Jesus' treasure? You know, Jesus' disciples were sent on a campaign one time to preach and do miracles. And they came back and said, Wow, you can't believe what we did. We did all this cool stuff. One thing we did, we even cast out demons in your name. And Jesus said, don't be so joyful about that, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. What he's saying was, guys, you better be careful. If you're going to make your joy dependent on your successful ministry campaigns, you're not going to make it because you're going to have some campaigns where you're going to be beaten up. You're going to be persecuted. They don't know it yet. They're going to die for the faith. And your joy has got to be bigger than what you do in my name. And by hearing Jesus said that, they would have referred in their minds back to the Old Testament scriptures that taught about the whole high priest who went into the Holy of Holies behind that veil. And that high priest had on his garment 12 precious stones on which were engraved the names of the tribes of Israel, the, the family units of Israel. He was taking in the presence of a holy God representing all God's people. And I love what Isaiah the prophet wrote in chapter 49. He says, can a, can a woman forget the baby who nurses at her breast? She may forget, but I will not forget thee. Look, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's what happens when you are born again. God engraves you on his hands. I love the poet who wrote, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. 
a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christ follower, follower, that you are his treasure, and it's exhilarating. If anything exhilarates you more than that truth and knowledge, some things need to be adjusted in your heart and life. Third, being this all-in person with Jesus will cost you your decisiveness. The Bible text, the text tells us that he went away sad because he had great wealth. It's only Mark of the three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that write, write this comment. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that. That even in the midst of this man's rejection of Jesus, Jesus still looked at him and loved him. God, God is a master at drawing people to himself through his truth and through his son Jesus. For this man, the price was just too high. Many people walked away from following Jesus. Not all the encounters of Jesus end with and lived happily ever after, sadly. Even the people that you care about choose not to get close to Jesus and know him as Savior and Lord. Listen, friends, there, there are only two ways, really two ways, that are appropriate responses when Jesus speaks truth into your life. We fall on our knees and worship him, or we are so disturbed we get away as fast as we can. That's it. And there's more hope for the person who runs away, who walks away, disturbed by what Jesus is saying. There's more disruption. I mean, there's more hope for that person than the person that's right here, and a lot of people find themselves in what I would just call them indifferent. Because the indifferent person is indecisive and is a danger zone. Those kind of people like a little bit of God because God makes you nicer. He makes you helpful. You look good. People see you as a nice citizen, clean cut. You know, you'll be a helper of people. Just a little bit of God to make you a little better. That's dangerous. Because, because that kind of person is neither all in worshiping him as Lord of all over every part of life, nor are they disgusted walking away as fast as they can. You see, the person who runs away, what happens when you get ticked off at somebody who says something to you you don't like? You replay it over and over again, don't you? And you get angry again. You rethink it. You mull it over. And see, if Jesus does that to you, if he rattles your cage to that extent, there's hope because you're still entertaining what he had to say. And maybe you'll get to truth. It's the person in no man's land of indifference that is in such a dangerous place. Does that describe anybody here today? You've got about three bucks worth of God to kind of take the edge off a little bit, but you know you're not really bowing down to him every day as Lord. Oh, there's so much more for us. There's so much more for us. If today you find Christianity laughable or irrelevant or boring or just sort of sweet, nice and comforting, Nice to have a little touch of or find it 
find it guilt or anxiety producing, you haven't met the real Jesus. Because the real Jesus will rock you. And you have to decide, will I be all in knowing him as Lord? Or will I walk away? That's it. Someone well said, the saddest words of tongue or pen are these four words, what might have been. If he had, if this man would have stayed in. Some say he he was the 13th disciple. He would have been because Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed. But sadly, we'll never know his name. We only know him this way as the one who walked away. God is all powerful, you know. We say that. We sing about it. But he limits his omnipotence in one, one area. He will not force himself upon anybody. He has to be welcomed. And finally, it's going to cost you your surrender. So have you heard the joke about the camel? I don't know camel jokes. Do you know camel jokes? I don't know camel jumps, jokes. I mean, one hump or two, but all I know, maybe, I don't know. That's not even funny, is it? <laughs> Jesus used hyperbole. He used language in a way to make a point. He said, you know, how hard it is for a rich man to get in heaven. It's easier for for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get in. I'll come back to the camels in a minute. But he's saying it's difficult for a rich person to get to heaven. Why? Because money money puts band-aids over a lot of our issues. You know, you, you feel bad? Yeah, just go buy something new to wear. Go get a new do. Get a new dye job. You know, get a nose job. Uh, get, you know, whatever's going to make you feel better, you know? You can pay your way through life to kind of put a, to kind of make that, that, that uh, pain go away. We, we, we buy ourselves through. That's why it's hard for rich people to get to heaven. This is what disturbs me. This guy lived 2,000 years ago. He didn't have a smartphone. He didn't have a house like mine. He didn't have central air or central heat. He didn't drive a car that I drive. He didn't have a, a, come and worship in a place like this. He, did, he didn't know about vacations. He didn't know. I mean, think of all he didn't know about. And he's called wealthy. What's that make you and me? Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to get to heaven. It's so easy to salve ourselves with money. Now, he doesn't say it's impossible. Well, he uses this little joke about camels going through eyes of needles. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but he's speaking from a Jewish point of view. Uh, Now, maybe you've heard when this has been taught before that there was a gate in the wall that was so tiny and that if you grease a camel like a pig, you can squeeze it through. So it can happen. It's just really hard. The problem is, you know, know, nothing like that exists. Jesus must have liked camel humor because in Matthew 23, he said this, you guys strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Ha ha, that's a good one, they said. Well, we don't, we don't see it as being funny, do we? That's because we don't know the language. We don't understand Jewish humor. When Jesus said that, understand that the word, uh, he, he spoke it in Aramaic. The word for gnat is galma. The word for camel is gamla. So you guys strain a gamma to swallow a gamla. Oh, you're a little Jewish. I heard a chuckle over here. 
you know. You see, it's a play on words. That's what he's doing. It'd be like me saying the joke, the one-liner about the cross. Did you hear about the cross-eyed school teacher that got fired because she couldn't keep her pupils straight? It's a play on words, right? So if I were saying that today in Israel, among people who, who, who speak a different language, they, we would say, what? What's that mean? We get it. It's, a play on, it's the same thing here. So Jesus uses this little word picture, hyperbole, to kind of get their attention. I like what this scholar wrote. He said, the needle in Matthew, Mark is raphis, while in Luke it is belone. Both refer to needles used for sewing. There's absolutely no evidence that there was a gate called the eye of a needle. The gate idea was probably invented by some unknown 19th century minister for the comfort of his wealthy congregation. So how do you know if money's your God, for instance? Well, what are you committing to the kingdom of God? If you're giving to kingdom purposes through the ministry of our church does not change your standard of living, you are not giving sacrificially. And that's what God calls for. If you have no forethought about your giving, it's whatever it has in your pocket, have in your pocket, if it doesn't represent sacrifice in some way, we are not, we are not all in. Money has too much say in our lives. That's just a little way to measure. But it could be other things for you. The truth is, it's impossible for a rich person or a poor person to get to heaven without Jesus. But the good news is, no matter who you might look at that seem impossible to get to heaven, is not true. Because with God, all things are possible. Even those family members that you think there is no hope for, there is great hope for. The people you think that there is, that can never be saved, you don't think big enough of our God and what he can do. I love last service. I got to baptize Wren. Wren is 30 years old. You know, she was invited to this church when she was seven. At 10, she was forbidden to come back. Her parents didn't want her associated with Jesus. And for 23 years, Wren's been making bad decisions with her life. She's a single mom with three kids. And in January, she looked around her and she looked at her life and said, what am I doing here? I need God in my life. And she came back and was born again this morning. Don't underestimate one invitation, one conversation with somebody about Jesus. Do you know Norma Lee McCorvey? Norma Lee McCorvey. She's the Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade. 1973, of course, abortion was legalized in our country. But, the, but something happened in 1995. Norma Lee McCorvey was baptized into Christ. The pro-choicers had distanced her because of her life. She had been a drug dealer, involved in alcohol and promiscuity. Bad press. And you know who reached to her? The director of Operation Rescue Pro-Life Group. And he first reached to her to apologize 
because in the public arena, he had called her a baby killer. And his conscience was stricken. And he sought her out. And it was her introduction to Jesus. Who's on your street? Who is God saying to you, would you look at them and love them? The people you would shake your head at? The people you, I don't know. The people you think there's no hope for? Who are you willing to love Jesus to on your street because Jesus saw you on his street? What would our lives look like without him today? He is Lord of life, and he is worthy of our worship.